You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello, my name is Father Douglas Mosey. I belong to the Congregation of Priests of St. Basil, and I am currently serving as the Rector of Holy Apostles College and Seminary in Cromwell, Connecticut. For many years, I have had the privilege of both studying, meditating upon, and teaching the writings of the Church Fathers and it is indeed a special opportunity for me and a great joy to be able to share some of the wealth that the Church Fathers have given to the Church for your better understanding of our contemporary Catholic faith. I would like to begin this course by placing our study of the Church Fathers in a context first of all of why they are important. What is their place in the Church as we move towards this great jubilee year of 2000. And after giving some background and some introductory thoughts on the importance of studying the Church Father, then to go through and look at some of our key dogmatic teachings of the Church, our teaching and understanding of the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity, our understanding of Christology, theological anthropology and the sacraments, and to see how the Church Fathers have contributed greatly to our current understanding of these doctrines as they have developed from the first formulations of the Creed based on sacred scripture through the Middle Ages and into our own time, and particularly as they have been renewed and given to us out of the documents of the Second Vatican Council, which the Church Fathers played such an important part. And to begin, I would like to share with you the thoughts of our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, on the importance of studying the Church Fathers. In his apostolic letter, which he wrote on the 16th centenary of St. Basil the Great, January 2nd, 1980, the Holy Father says this, Fathers of the Church is the name rightly given to those saints who, by the power of their faith, the depth and riches of their teachings, gave her new life and great increase in the course of the first centuries. So note what the Holy Father begins with. The Church Fathers are saints, first of all. And secondly, they have given us riches of their teachings and of their spiritual life. And one of the great treasures that the Church Fathers give us is this incorporation of theology and spirituality. And the Holy Father goes on to say, they are indeed fathers of the Church because from them, by means of the Gospel, she received life. They are likewise its builders because they set up the main structures of the Church of God on the one foundation laid by the Apostles, which is Christ. And so he uses the image of 
building a building, that the apostles form the foundation with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, and then it is the church fathers who, in a sense, are the Joyces, are the framework on which the structure that is the living church of God is built. And so we are able then to, as any good architect can, when new thoughts, new developments, new ideas about our faith emerge, we can always ask ourselves, how do they fit in with the structure of the church? Are they something that is integral to its organic growth and development that adds to what is already there? Or is it something foreign, trying to be imposed on the structure from the outside? If it's the former, it's to be embraced. If it's the latter, it's to be set aside. The Holy Father continues that the church still lives today by the life received from her fathers. And so the life given to us, instilled in the church, continues on. I always think of the wonderful preface of the Apostles, where we pray at their Masses that the Apostles from their place in heaven continue to guide the church on earth. And so too with the Church Fathers. The life that they have given to Holy Mother the Church continues to bear fruit in this age, in every age, until the end of time. And on the structures erected by her first contractors, the Holy Father continues, she is still built today in the joy and sorrow of her journeying and her daily toil. They were therefore fathers and fathers, they remain forever. They themselves, in fact, are a stable structure of the church and they fulfill a perennial function for the church of all centuries. And I repeat, they fulfill a perennial function for the church of all ages. And so the study of the church fathers, the enrichment that they give to our Catholic spirituality is something that never gets old. And one can understand why the Fathers of the Church at the Second Vatican Council incorporated so much of the thought of the Fathers into the documents of that Council, and why the New Catechism of the Catholic Church is filled to overflowing with quotes and references to the Church Fathers. The Holy Father continues that every subsequent proclamation and magisterium if it is to be authentic, must be compared with their proclamation and their magisterium. So it's important to understand the thought, the life, the spirit of the Church Fathers as a touchstone, as a litmus test to all of our explorations of Catholic theology, Catholic spirituality. Does it conform? Is it organic? Is it an authentic development from the foundation and the structure, the joices, the framework given to us by the Church Fathers? If so, it is to be embraced. If not, it is to be discarded. Every charism and every ministry must draw from the vital source of their fatherhood. 
and every new stone added to the sacred edifice that is Holy Mother the Church grows and expands every day as it is set in the structures already placed by the Church Fathers and must be welded and joined to them. Guided by these certainties, the Holy Father continues, the Church never tires of returning to their writings. The wonderful Liturgy of the Hours, the office and hour of readings, is filled with writings from the Church Fathers. Many priests, many religious, many of the laity who pray the Liturgy of the Hours constantly marvel at the richness of the passages given to us and handed down to us from the spirit and thought of the Church Fathers. We return time and time again to their writings, so full of wisdom and renewing their memory continually. It is with great joy, the Holy Father continues, and I add my own great joy in being able to share these hours with you, that in the course of the liturgical year, we always meet our fathers again. And every time we are strengthened in faith and encouraged in hope. And it is my sincere desire that all of us, as we reflect upon who these men are, the power of their writings, that we may be strengthened in our faith and encouraged in our hope. Now, who are the fathers of the church? Well, traditionally, there have been four criteria offered as necessary qualifications to be considered a father of the church. First of all, chronology, antiquity. The apostolic era is usually considered to begin with the writers after the compilation of the canon of the New Testament. And so, beginning with the Apostolic Fathers, which would include Saint Clement of Rome, who lived in the first century, died perhaps in the 80s or 90s, Saint Polycarp, the great Bishop of Smyrna, martyred in his 80th year, and Saint Ignatius of Antioch, martyred in Rome in the year 110. These church fathers, the apostolic fathers, would have known personally the apostles and the evangelists, the disciples of our Lord. And the era of the church fathers normally is considered to end in the East with Saint John of Damascus, who died in the year 749, and either with St. Gregory the Great in the West, who died in the year 604, or some would also include St. Isidore, who died in 636, or St. Bede in 735. But at any rate, one of the criteria for being a church father is to have lived in antiquity, from the first to the seventh or eighth century. Secondly, one must have holiness of life. 
Many of the church fathers have indeed been canonized either by the shedding of their own blood as martyrs or acclaimed as saints by the universal church. But it need not be that one is canonized to be considered a father of the church, but holiness of life and the affirmation of that is a second criteria. Thirdly, there must be orthodoxy of doctrine. Now, the fathers of the church were trailblazers. And like every explorer, like every trailblazer, they didn't get everything right exactly all the time. I always encourage my students not to be scandalized if there is a thought or a statement in one of the church fathers that seems different from what is presented in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So, orthodoxy of doctrine doesn't mean that they had everything right all of the time. But what it does mean is that those doctrines central, what we call the very first doctrines of the Trinity, of the Creed, of the Incarnation and Redemption, that these are affirmed and reaffirmed through the teaching of the Church Fathers. Heresy, which is a denial of one of the foundational doctrines of the Church, of course would then prohibit one from being considered a doctor of the Church. And then fourthly, there must be ecclesiastical approval. And have the writings of these men been preserved, been handed down through the living tradition of the faith. And those who we consider to be the fathers of the church are those whose teachings, whose letters, whose homilies have perdured down through the centuries, been handed down and have become part of the living tradition of the church. And this ecclesiastical approval need not be necessarily explicit, but has to be implicit in how their writings and thought and spirit have been received and incorporated into the church through the centuries. So the four necessary qualifications, first, antiquity, second, holiness of life, thirdly, orthodoxy of doctrine, and finally, ecclesiastical approval. Now, in my introductory remarks, quoting our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, I have touched upon the importance of the Church Fathers, but to fill that out in a little greater fashion. Why study the Church Fathers? Well, the Holy Father has given us the basic reason they are the framers of the structure of the church, built upon Christ Jesus as the cornerstone and the apostles as the foundation. Specifically, they are the privileged witnesses to traditions, founders, whether they be founders of institutions, founders of religious societies, always have a privileged Position. They are the ones who bring together the 
sense of mission, the sense of direction. And analogously, in the growth and in the development of the church, of her structures, of her teachings, the fathers have a very special place. They were the closest to the sources. The early fathers, referred to, as I mentioned, as apostolic fathers, personally knew the apostles and the disciples. They listened at the feet of the apostles. They had this purity of the sources, of the living tradition, the very teaching of those closest to Christ. And they were the ones that developed these first structures of the church. Think of all of the important firsts in the ecclesial order that happened in those early centuries. First and foremost, the canon of scripture. In those first centuries, through the leadership of the church fathers, the church affirmed those writings, which are the inspired writings forming the corpus of the New Testament, and they decided which ones were authentic and which ones were not to be added to the canon of Scripture. The early canonical discipline and sacramental discipline was developed by the Church Fathers. The basic structure of our Roman Rite was set in the patristic era, and the basic flow of the Eucharistic liturgy today follows that pattern established by the fathers of the church in those early centuries. They were the ones who brought together and articulated in a systematic way what we have come to know as the deposit of our faith and that we have the surety of knowing the truth who is Jesus Christ because of the creeds which were formulated and professed in the time of the fathers, the baptismal creeds that were developed, that founded and became the foundation as part of the great creeds of the early ecumenical councils. So there are so many aspects of our Catholic life, our Catholic ritual, our Catholic teaching that were brought together for the first time in the age of the Church Fathers. Also, the Church Fathers had a wonderful sense of unity among the churches. Even recognizing legitimate diversity in liturgical matters, in canonical matters, in matters of discipline, always holding, of course, the one faith, the one altar, the one sacrifice, the one priest who is Jesus Christ. So there developed many rich and diverse liturgies in the early centuries. And no one saw them or experienced them as a threat to the unity of the church. Theological schools developed with different emphasis. Schools in Alexandria and Antioch, where the Alexandrian school focused more on allegorical interpretation or the spiritual 
interpretation of the sacred scriptures and Antioch on the literal or historical interpretation of sacred scriptures. But both of these were, seeing, were seen as part of the full understanding of the Word of God. Likewise, in the early centuries, the church existed always with some tension, but generally with great love, support, and affection in the Greek East and in the growing Latin West. So we who are in such a culturally diverse situation and so aware of the other churches of the world in our own day have been given a great witness how within the unity of one faith there can be a richness of differing traditions. And in speaking of traditions, the fathers of the church had a tremendous sense of what we mean by the tradition of our Catholic Church. So often in our own day, tradition takes on kind of a pejorative sense. Tradition is too often thought of something that is static, something that has become somewhat fossilized, something that is kind of out of date, and it needs to be left behind. But the Church Fathers always saw tradition as a multiform organism pulsating with life. While we express tradition in the written word, much more is tradition the lived communion of members of the church surrounding the one altar, the one sacrifice, the one priest, Jesus Christ. And so from the church fathers, we can take confidence that tradition is not a static hanging onto the past, but an enthusiastic sense of security and freedom in being able to develop and grow, but knowing from where we come and knowing that we have our feet firmly planted in the rich heritage of the past and it has been mediated down through the centuries. And also, the Church Fathers are the guarantors of an authentic Catholic tradition. I have made reference to the Second Vatican Council and how central the thought and teaching of the Church Fathers were to the documents coming forth from that Council. How many references there are in the New Catechism of the Catholic Church to the Church Fathers. How many great Christian men and women have found their way either back to or into the Catholic Church through meditating and reflecting upon the writings of the Church Fathers. The great Cardinal John Henry Newman, great 19th century English Cardinal, who in his younger years was a member of the Church of England. He fell in love with the writings and thought and spirit of the Church Fathers. And in his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, he points out that he saw in them the true church, the universal church, the Catholic church. And they became very instrumental 
in his acceptance and embrace of the Roman Catholic Church. And many other examples of finding a touchstone, of finding the full, rich basis of who we are as given to us through the Church Fathers. So, for all of these reasons, it is important to become knowledgeable, to become immersed in the spirit, in the thought, and in the prayer of the Church Fathers, who always remember, continue to guide us still from their place in heaven. Now, what about their theological method? Well, the great Catholic theologian, John Courtney Murray, says this about the methodology of the Church Fathers. He writes, The study of the Church Fathers serves to bridge the gap between theology and spirituality. The Fathers of the Church are not only teachers of Christian doctrine, but masters of the spiritual life. Not only do their works give guidance to the mind in its search for the truth of God, but they also afford inspiration to the whole soul in its search for God himself. A fundamental fact that I hope you will always remember in relation to the Fathers of the Church, is that their method is not an intellectual method in isolation or separateness from their prayer, from their love of Christ and His Church. They bring together spirituality and thought and pastoral concern and dedication to the mission of the Church. And so, if nothing else, if we can see as seminal, as integral, as essential to our Catholic lives, it is to bring together in a creative way the intellect and the spirit. The Church Fathers always were saints as well as great thinkers. So, that's the first point of their theological method. Never theological thought or theological discourse outside of a living relationship and love for Christ and His Church. Secondly, the Church Fathers always touch and go back into the Word of God, the Sacred Scriptures. Some have described or defined the Church Fathers as commentators on Sacred Scripture. As you read their writings, you will see how often they quote Sacred Scripture. What a facility they have. What a deep knowledge and love for the Word of God. Line after line, makes reference to the passages of sacred scripture. They don't footnote them like we do because they were writing in a time when 
The entire Christian community had been immersed in the Word of God. They had heard it proclaimed forcefully and powerfully in the liturgies. They have memorized great passages of sacred scripture, and sacred scripture so filled the heart and minds of the early Christians. And certainly one of the great fruits for ourselves as Catholics coming out of the Second Vatican Council and with the great Constitution Dei Verbum is the rediscovery in our own era of that sense of being immersed in the Word of God that held true for all of these early centuries that we refer to as the patristic era. So we can say then that the church fathers are primarily and essentially commentators on sacred scripture. Now, they didn't have some of the advantages that we have in light of developments of modern biblical studies and biblical exegesis. We are privileged to have developed the historical critical method and other ways of better knowing the origins and the first meaning of the scriptures. But what they did have is inscribed very poignantly by Pope Pius XII. He writes that the church fathers have a, quote, sort of sweet intuition about heavenly things through an admirable penetration of spirit. Wherefore, they go further into the depths of the divine word. What a wonderful and important insight that Pope Pius XII has given us. The Holy Father reminds us, they, the church fathers, have a sweet intuition of heavenly things through their penetration of the spirit of scripture. They go further into the depths of the divine word. And so, while they didn't have all of the advantages of modern biblical studies, they had something that we have not been able to recapture, nor has any age been able to recapture since them. This intuitive sense of the depth of the spiritual meaning of the Word of God. And we're seeing now in the study of sacred scripture the greater realization of how we need to bring together this sweet intuition of the church fathers together with the very best of modern biblical exegesis. Not an either or, but a both and. If any of you have had the privilege of seeing the early mosaics at Ravenna, the 6th and 7th century mosaics, you will notice that there's a brilliance there that artists, for whatever reason, have been unable to capture in the centuries later. And analogically, the church fathers are able to tap into the spiritual meaning of the sacred scripture in a way that no one has been able to replicate since. What a gift it is for us to be able to mine the treasure of their thought. What a great strengthening of our own love and understanding of the spirit of sacred scripture through the eyes and heart and mind of the church fathers. 
So I encourage you throughout this course, but also in your own spiritual reading, your own reflection and study upon our Catholic tradition, read the Church Fathers. Read the commentaries on the books of the Sacred Scripture to bring out and to partake in this sweet, intuitive understanding of the living Word of God, a living Word that penetrates the hearts of each of us. In addition to their being centered and anchored in sacred scripture, the theology of the Church Fathers was also born in Medio Ecclesiae, in the midst of the Church. They were not academics in the modern sense. Most of the Church Fathers were pastors. They were concerned with the everyday problems of their people. St. Augustine, for example, one of the great Western Church Fathers, in his classic work, The City of God, wrote this work in response to the accusations being made against the Christians for the destruction of Rome at the hands of the barbarians. And so it was out of that crisis situation that he wrote this classic work, The City of God. And in it he points out that those who belong to the City of God are those who have chosen a selfless rather than a selfish way of life. And how those who belong to the City of Man are those who choose self first and others second. But Augustine was a bishop. He was fully and passionately involved in the lives of his people, the lives of his community. And that is true with all of the Church Fathers. They were very much a part of the community in which they lived and responding to real questions that were being asked by real people in very concrete and specific pastoral situations. So we might say then that their thought and their theology is extremely pastoral and therefore again very important and apropos to our own study and to our own reflection. We might also say that they are therefore servants of scripture and tradition. They didn't, again, consider themselves as innovators. They weren't trying to come up with a new idea, a new thesis, but rather saw themselves as servants. They were the interpreters and guardians of the norms of sacred scripture and the living, pulsating life of the church that had been handed down to them by their predecessors and to whom they faithfully entrusted the deposit of faith to their successors. Now, as servants, that is not to say that they were not originators. Each age, of course, 
faces different questions and pastoral demands. One of the challenges facing the church fathers was how to present the good news of Jesus Christ in a Greek-Roman culture. How to approach the philosophy and the wisdom of the age and the great question faced by the church fathers. Do we, in a sense, step out of our cultural context or do we try to be leaven, to be salt, to be flavoring, to be the light, to take in the very best of wisdom and of truth wherever it could be found and see it in relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ who is the way and the truth and the life. The vast majority of the church fathers saw an opportunity to develop, to build upon the philosophy and the wisdom of the age around them. Now, to do this, of course, they had to become masters of the philosophy of the age. They had to be able to distinguish authentic thought from that that was in error, to veer away from the errors of extreme rationalism or syncretism that were infecting the age. But they began the great task of Christian enculturation. And again, we see a parallel with our own day. The church today must ask herself, what is our role and our place in the many cultures around the world? Do we try and retreat or do we try and become the leaven? Do we try and raise and take the very best of the culture around us and bring it to a higher level? There was a very famous letter written by St. Augustine of Canterbury who had been sent to England by Pope Gregory the Great in the late 500s. And when he got to England, which at one time had been evangelized, but then with the erosion of the Roman Empire, had returned to its pagan ways. And St. Augustine wrote back to St. Gregory the Great, who was Pope at that time, and said, Your Holiness, what we have found is magnificent temples with pagan idols. How do we handle this? In St. Gregory's pastoral norm, he was quick to reply, tear down the idols, but keep the temple. In other words, destroy what cannot be assimilated into our authentic Christian faith, but build upon what is there, what is good, what is sound in a particular culture. And this then expresses the pastoral program of the Church Fathers to affirm, to develop, to collaborate with the wisdom of the age, but only that which can be authentically and truthfully incorporated and become part of the good news of Jesus Christ. St. Augustine said this in his De Doctrina Christiana. 
He says, if those who are to be called philosophers have said true things in harmony with our faith, they should be claimed for our use. What a wonderful and perennial, perennially valid pastoral norm. So the theological method of the fathers then, very scriptural, very pastoral, very much in tune with the culture and the times of their day. And another aspect was their strong defense of the faith that had been entrusted to them through sacred scripture and living tradition. They were the great apologists for the correct understanding of the doctrine of the Most Holy Trinity, for our Christological beliefs, and for our ecclesiology. They were enlightened promoters of the intellectus fidei, that the understanding of the faith is important, and how to understand the faith within the context of a particular time. They were the ones that began to explain the teachings of the faith using some of the terminology of the philosophy of the time. And they were not afraid then to develop and to expand the solid and inspired teaching of sacred scripture. And it wasn't always easy. St. Augustine again remarks how the heretics, in kind of a paradoxical way, played a positive role in the growth of the deposit of the faith. Because when the perennial understanding of the Most Holy Trinity, of Christ, of our Blessed Mother, of the Church, were being challenged or questioned or refuted, it demanded of the Fathers to reflect more deeply, to explain more clearly, to try and articulate in ways that spoke to the intellectual understanding of their time. And out of that then came the great articles and great creeds of our faith, the first ecumenical councils, of which there were four in the patristic age, were so important in formulating the teachings of the church with regard to these central doctrines. The Council of Nicaea in 325, of course, together with the First Council of Constantinople in 381 has given us the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. The Councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon in 431 and 451, respectively, have given us the great understanding of our Blessed Mother as Theotokos, the Mother of God, our understanding of the divine person of Jesus Christ having a human nature as well as a divine nature, the hypostatic union. And so all of these were the results of the absolute dedication, determination, and faithful giving of self to the defense of the faith 
which resulted in dogmatic progress and in a fuller restatement of the traditions and teachings of our church. Another characteristic of the theology of the church fathers is that they held a great sense of mystery. They had a great experience and sense of the divine presence. One of the desires expressed so often in our own age is the hope that, particularly in our liturgical celebrations, we can promote and foster an ever greater sense of the mystery of God's presence. Again, we can look back to the age of the church. One has to only reflect upon the experiences of Christian initiation, the wonders of the rite itself. Unlike today, when we generally explain every part of the rite of Christian initiation before the candidate receives it, in the patristic church, while the faith was given before the experience, the rite of Christian initiation was meant to be an experiential rite, to experience what it means to be immersed in the waters of the baptismal fount, to be anointed with the sacred chrism, to be enrobed with the new white garment, to be physically a new creation as the neophytes are presented to the bishop in the cathedral for the anointing with sacred chrism and for the reception of their first Holy Communion. And it was only afterwards that the practicals, the details of the rite itself were explained. And so there was this tremendous sense of awe and wonder, the architecture, the environment. Everything was ordered in such a way to accent the awfulness, the awesomeness of being in the presence of God. And so they were very much immersed in the experience of this mystery of God. And so then, to summarize the theological method of the Church Fathers, we can say again, first and foremost, based on sacred scripture. Secondly, bringing spirituality and thought together in an integral whole. Thirdly, there was an originality and an enculturation, a willingness to use the thought, the wisdom of the day, to better express the living tradition of the church. There was an absolute dedication to the defense and to the upholding of the truths of our Catholic faith. And finally, this great sense of the presence of God, the mysterium fidei, the sense of wonder, of awesomeness, of being a part of this holy nation, this chosen people, of experiencing the love and the presence of Christ through his church and in a particular way through the different rites within the church. And so we can summarize by 
reaffirming the great cultural, spiritual, and apostolic wealth given to us through the Church Fathers. We have received from them many classics of not only Christian culture, but indeed of our Western culture. I have noted already the great work of St. Augustine on the City of God. One of the other great works, of course, of St. Augustine is that of his Confessions. I would encourage you to read it sometime in your life, if not within the context of this course. I tell my students that they don't want to embarrass themselves by arriving in heaven and having to admit that one has not read the Confessions of St. Augustine. So filled with the richness. And again, St. Augustine is such an example par excellence of bringing this spirituality and depth of thought together. And the Confessions go back and forth between prayer of praise and thanksgiving and with the facing of the real struggles of his life, of his becoming as first of all a Christian and then a great bishop and a great saint of our Catholic Church. And like ourselves, the Church Fathers were called to bridge the gospel and the secular culture in which they live. And we too, in our own day, have such an opportunity and have such a challenge. The Holy Father is praying and asks all of us to pray for the great Jubilee year. A time that we expect will be a time of great blessing, a time of reawakening. And will we be prepared to be the pontus, to be the bridge between the unevangelized, the uncatechized? And yet we pray and trust those with a growing spiritual hunger. I often think of the great transformation that occurred in the Roman Empire between the time of the death of Christ and in the year 60 or so when Peter and Paul walked into the city of Rome, the very center of the Roman Empire. And by the year 315, and with Constantine and the peace of the church, the transformation that happened in those two centuries. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, reminds us that it is the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. And we have seen that witnessed by the church fathers and it is our opportunity then to, in our own way, in our own day, again, to be that fertile ground upon which the new evangelization called for by our Holy Father can take root as we approach the blessings of this great Jubilee year. And the Church Fathers, of course, were strong witnesses to Christian moral behavior. So needed in our own time, so needed is a commitment to the truth who is Jesus Christ, to the moral teachings of the Church, these men are our models of great dedication, great determination. St. Polycarp, one of the Apostolic Fathers, was well into his 80s when he was asked to burn incense before 
a pagan god. And he said, I have been faithful all these years. Do you think I would ever be unfaithful in my old age? Such a tremendous witness. And we likewise are called to be and to show and to demonstrate that same clarity of vision and that same dedication to witness in our own age. And as I mentioned, the great pastoral emphasis of the Church Fathers. The need today, there are so many sheep without shepherds. And the Second Vatican Council, of course, has reaffirmed the fact that each of us is called to share in the mission of the Church. No longer can the mission of the Church be restricted to priests, to religious, but it's all of us, priests, religious, and laity together that must be the workers in the vineyard. And so this sense of pastoral dedication that is so exemplified in the Church Fathers is something that's most apropos and needed in our own day. In concluding this first lecture, just a few short words on how to study the Church Fathers. Well, usually this whole area is divided into what we refer to as patristics and patrology. And we'll do a little of each in this course. Patrology is focusing on the life and writings of the particular fathers of the church, while patristics has a broader sense of focusing on the theological thought of the church fathers. In the next lectures, I will look at some of the themes that run through all of the Church Fathers with regard to the Trinity, Christology, the sacraments, and then look at some of the exemplary models of the Church Fathers. But what is most important, whether it be from the perspective of patrology or patristics, is to Get to know the Church Fathers as living intercessors and mediators for our Church today. My hope is that all of us will get to know their thought, their spirit, more intimately, more personally, so that we can always stay connected with them as they remain connected with us from their place in heaven where they continue to mediate to intercede on our behalf. And may the structures that we build in the church of the next millennium always be consonant and be in harmony with the structures that we have been given and which have been passed down to us through the Church Fathers. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.